Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Paul Gordon, who is a composer, lyricist, and playwright. Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen. He wrote the music, the lyrics, and the book. And it's playing at TheaterWorks Palo Alto at the Lucy Stern Theater, March 9th through April 3rd. Sense and Sensibility previously played in Chicago and at the Old Globe. Paul Gordon is the creator of several musicals. Jane Eyre hit Broadway after the turn of the century. There's also two other Jane Austen musicals, Emma and Pride and Prejudice. There's another called Being Earnest, Daddy Longlegs, Estella Scrooge, and we'll talk a little about some of those. He's also the creator of streamingmusicals.com, which we will also talk about. But I want to start, Paul Gordon, I want to start with a little bit about your history, because when I went online, you seem to have suddenly appeared full-grown from Zeus in 2001 with Jane Eyre. But there is one line in your biography which says that you were a pop songwriter. So let's go back. Were you always interested in song? Were you a musician? How did that work? And what were those songs? Well, thanks, Richard. Yeah, I had a couple of pop hits in the 1980s. I had a song called Next Time I Fall, which was a hit by Peter Cetera and Amy Grant that I co-wrote with Bobby Caldwell. And then co-writing with Jay Gruska, we wrote a song called Friends and Lovers that was a hit for Carl Anderson and Gloria Loring. And at the same time, weirdly, it was a country hit with a completely different recording with Eddie Rabbit and Juice Newton. But I had been sort of in bands, you know, growing up. I grew up in Los Angeles and I was probably more interested in trying to become Elvis Costello than writing musicals at that time. I graduated to musicals when I started working on Jane Eyre. How did that happen? I mean, were you a musicals fan at the time? Did you know Broadway musicals? I'm sure. You know, growing up, my parents, you know, they had all the musicals. They had My Fair Lady and West Side Story and South Pacific. So my ears were sort of primed for musicals. And I grew up, you know, loving the Beatles and the Beach Boys and then later Paul Simon and Joni Mitchell and Laura Nero. So I had a very sort of a collage of musical influences But my focus was on writing pop music, which I did for quite a few years. I was a writer for Chapel Music and Warner Brothers. And then when they merged Warner Chapel and Screen Gems and Geffen and a lot of different companies, I I wrote a lot of songs. I, I, I had a lot of success in those days, but I got really tired of it. And then I wanted to gravitate towards musicals because I'd written a rock musical with some friends years ago that I loved, but I was interested in creating something that was based on a classic novel. Hence, that's when I discovered Jane Eyre. 
When you say you discovered Jane Eyre, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of been around. Had you been aware of, of the book? Had you seen the various television or film incarnations? Yes. When I say I discovered it, meaning I was just at the book section and I was looking for a classic novel to adapt. I just went, I wanted to adapt something in the public domain. I just want to see if I can do it. I didn't know if I could adapt a, a novel by myself. It seemed like, seemed like fun. And I wasn't really aware of Jane Eyre. I didn't really, I had heard of it. And I literally read the back of the novel and, and I just read the, the synopsis. And I went, this looks great. And I was, I was about to take a plane and I got on the plane and by page 10, I was in tears. And I just went, I have to write. And I did. You said you tackled a rock musical beforehand. But in this case, were you working with anybody? Had you taken any classes in how to create a musical? Uh, how did that work? And how did you break through to get the first production long before Broadway? Yeah, that's a great question. Nobody taught me how to write a musical. Again, I'd been working on this rock musical for years with friends, but it had been on pause for a number of years. And so I just took the novel. I read it. It, it took all my willpower not to start writing music before I'd read the whole thing. And then I just started from the top and I just went through it and just wrote what I thought would sound good. And it took me about a year to write the show. But while I was writing, I was demoing the show with my friend, Sally Dworsky. And Sally was somebody I knew in LA and she was a background singer for Don Henley and a lot of other rock acts. And she'd sung, she'd sung demos of some of my songs, but she was also in the L.A. touring company of Les Mis at that time, understudying Eponine. So she came in and started to do the vocals for Jane Eyre. And then she started to bring other members of the Les Mis company in to sing. And at the end of the session, at the, at the end of when we were working, she brought in Anthony Cravello who ended up later becoming Rochester in Toronto. And it was Anthony who introduced me to John Caird, who was in L.A. at the time overseeing the production. And of course, at this time, John was getting 50 tapes a week, 50 demos a week, people wanting him to direct his musicals. And somehow he listened to this, called me up and said, hey, I think this is pretty good, but I think you should place it in the US and you should put it in the 20th century. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. And there was a silence. And I realized at that moment, oh, I might've just you know, made the director of Les Mis go away. But he said, all right, let's meet. So we met at his rented house in Westwood and John sat in his backyard with a red pencil correcting my spelling. Why didn't you spell check on my script? I have no idea to this day. But he, he kept checking my spelling and then he would occasionally go, this is 20th century and, and this isn't British. And I thought, oh, my God, he hates it. But at the end of our session, he went, I don't know how you know how to do this, but um, if you want, I'd like to direct it and write the book. And I was just floored. And I went, OK. And we were off and running. And that's how it happened. You know, it, it's just crazy. It was just, I had no connections to anybody in Broadway. I was a pop composer. I knew everybody in the music business, but nobody in New York. Paul Gordon. So at that point, 
you had your own libretto to go with the songs, or you were just inserting songs in the book to see what would happen? No, I wrote the whole thing. I wrote the book, the music, and the lyrics. And, you know, and John ended up, you know, I mean, some of my book probably remains to this day. But no, he came in and then he started to rewrite the libretto and say, hey, you should have a song here that later turned into painting or portrait. You should have a song here that later turned into Brave Enough for Love. So it was just, it was an incredible education working with John Caird because I'd been writing pop lyrics. So he would really, you know, look at my lyrics and, and, and say, what does this line mean? And I went, well, you know, I'm just talking about how it feels inside. And he would go, you can't say inside, you have to be specific. And he really guided me. And I, and I really got a great education on how to write lyrics for theater. The other part of it, of course, is that the history of musicals shows the two main thrusts would say be the first be Oscar Hammerstein, who wrote to character, and then later Stephen Sondheim, who just transformed everything. Did either of those musical geniuses, did either of them influence you as you were working on it or afterward? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Stephen Sondheim, for sure. When I listened to A Little Night Music for the first time, that completely changed my life. And I was mesmerized and obsessed with Stephen Sondheim. And, you know, Listen to nothing but him for many, many, many years. And, and then it, it just took me a while to shed some of that and just find my own voice. So by the time I was writing Jane Eyre, I mean, obviously I was influenced by him, but, but I was just trying to discover my own voice and, and how I would write. But yes, Stephen Sondheim, and specifically a little night music, which I think is to me you know, musical theater 101 of like anybody who wants to write a musical and wants to know how, study that musical. And I did. And so that was my only education. And I also read a book called Sondheim and Company, which not a lot of people talk about, written by Craig Zayden. And that just went through all of his early shows up until Pacific Overtures, I think, in the first edition. And that was an incredible education. So I didn't take a class, but I did read that book and I did listen to a lot of Stephen Sondheim. I wrote a couple of articles about him in the Sondheim Review when I was doing Jane Eyre. I imagine he read it because I hear he read everything about him, but I'm disappointed that I was too scared to contact him. Jane Eyre went to Broadway. I have the CD. It's a lovely score, but it didn't last long, I don't think. No, it it? did not. We opened the same season as this little show called The Producers that you may remember. And not only did they suck up all the air in the room, they sucked up all the air in the Tonys. They gave us like a minute and 30 seconds to do our song. We were nominated for best show, best score, best director, best leading actress and best lighting design. And they gave us a minute and 30 seconds to do our song. And meanwhile, Matthew Broderick and Nathan Lane hosted the show and did like three numbers. So it was just an unfortunate time for us. But I was really disappointed at the time. The show only lasted eight months. But honestly, it just paved the way for my career. I'm so grateful that we got to do it on Broadway. There are so many fans of the show. And 
John and I have written a, a chamber version of the piece that we've been working on for 10 years. And Music Theater International is, is, is going to license the new version. And, and we're hoping to stream it within the next year and, and give, it a, give it another chance in the world. After Broadway, did any regional theaters pick up on it? Yes. Theater Works, Palo Alto, Robert Kelly loved the show. He was the first regional theater to do the show. And really that started my relationship with Theater Works and Robert Kelly, who went on to do Emma and, and, and Pride and Prejudice and Being Earnest and Daddy Longlegs and now Sense and Sensibility. None of these other shows went to Broadway. Did any of them go off-Broadway yes. in New York? Daddy Longlegs played off-Broadway in 2015. Also good timing because we played the same season as this other very small show called Hamilton. <laughs> so I always know when to open my shows in New York. I have this inner radar that's really working out well for me. Paul Gordon, after Jane Eyre, you looked around and found Jane Austen and there was Emma now I'm a little confused about something because we have Sense and Sensibility coming in, supposedly 2019, but there was a pandemic. And before that, there was Pride and Prejudice, but Sense and Sensibility would have come first because it was in Chicago in 2015? The order of my Jane Austen trilogy is Emma, Sense and Sensibility, and then Pride and Prejudice was the last one that I wrote that we did two years ago. Kelly is, is now doing Sense and Sensibility, which was done, as you said, at Chicago Shakespeare in 2015 and the Old Globe in San Diego in 2016. These three are similar in, say, the style of music and how you present it then? Actually, no. I did a different approach for, for the scores of each. I mean, they're not wildly different because they're me, but Emma is a little more comical and written, you know, in a, in a musical theater style, but it is sort of a, a lighter score. And whereas Sense and Sensibility has more weight to it. And in fact, when we did it in Chicago, it was orchestrated for 11 musicians. It's just more of a melodic score. And then Pride and Prejudice, I, I went more in a pop idiom for that. I just felt like you know, this was more of a contemporary sounding piece. And I went a little more contemporary in Pride and Prejudice. Now let's talk specifically a little bit about Sense and Sensibility. The only Austin I ever read, and it was in high school, was Pride and Prejudice. So that's the only one I read. But of course, I've seen all the movies. I've seen everything from Clueless to Emma to multiple versions of Pride and Prejudice. Sense and Sensibility Years ago, I saw the Emma Thompson version, decided this time before this interview, I would go to a BBC version, mainly because it was probably much closer to the book. Uh, are you familiar with that version? No, I've only seen the Ang Lee version of Sense. But no, I haven't seen the BBC version. I've, I've seen the BBC version of Emma and Pride and Prejudice, but not Sense. For one thing, the characters of Eleanor and Marianne are teenagers, yes. as opposed to the Ang Lee version, the Emma Thompson version. What you do have, which is really good, is that the character of Colonel Brandon was played by David Morrissey, who was probably in his 30s or 40s, as opposed to Marianne, who's a teenager. 
you know, probably played by a girl in her early 20s. Right. So you had that differentiation. But when you're taking this, the tendency is to focus on the older sister, Eleanor, because she's more interesting and she's more wise. Yeah, she's, she's wiser. Absolutely. Do you balance them? Because in the BBC version, they are balanced. And I understand you kind of put the mother and the other sister in the background. Are they even there? Oh, yeah. No, when I first wrote this, the first thing I did was cut the mother and the sister. What I do when I'm musicalizing novels, it's quite a task. And you have to make decisions. You can't just tell the story of the whole novel because obviously the audience will be in the theater for four hours. Those were some of the mistakes that John Caird and I made in the early days of adapting Jane Eyre, is we tried to be too true to Charlotte Bronte. So what I learned when I started doing these Jane Austen adaptations on my own, immediately I just went, well, what am I cutting? You know, I'm cutting the sister and the brother in Emma, and in Sense and Sensibility, I'm cutting the mother and the sister. So that was the first thing that I did. And yes, I made Eleanor and Marianne equal in terms of the storylines, because that's the central theme of the story is the love of these two women and these two sisters and how they get along in the world. And it was really important to me to give them each equal weight. How do you remove, I mean, I I can understand removing the younger sister. How do you remove the mother since they're living with the mother? Well, in our version, they are not living with the mother. The mother and the father have passed. And in the start of our story, like the start of the novel, the father has passed. So in our version, they've just lost everything. They have nothing. And I, and I like that they have nothing because it gives them somewhere to go. And I just felt in the way that I wanted to tell the story, we didn't need the mother. Mrs. Jennings could provide some of that voice that we needed from, from somebody older. But Eleanor really has all the wisdom that the mother had. And then I... And it was so long ago that I adapted this, that, that what I likely did was just, I probably took a little bit of the mother and put that in Eleanor's character. As I was watching it, I kept thinking, where would a song be? So I saw, say, at the moment when Marianne, she is recovering from her illness toward the end and Eleanor comes into her and they kind of open up to each other. And I thought, that could be a duet. Hmm. Yes, it is. It's, it's actually a reprise of a song called Bedside that Eleanor sings when Marianne is unconscious in the bed and doesn't want to lose her. And then when they have their moment that you just described, we do that song again, only it's a duet. And then there would be a song by her on again, off again, love to be, or however you want to call him, Edward Ferrer's, where he comes clean with her. Yes. Yeah, he comes clean. He was an interesting character to write for because, you know, he doesn't say anything. And Jane Austen generally has a character in each of her novels that is a a man who's in love with a woman who just can't speak. So it's always a little challenging trying to write songs for somebody who doesn't really articulate their feelings all that well. But yes, so he does have his moment where he expresses his feelings and thought through song. What about a song for the the bad guy, Willoughby, when he comes clean? 
Yeah. So he has a song at the end when he comes and visits Eleanor and confesses everything that he did. And that's his moment. And that is absolutely a song. You're naming all the songs, Richard. You got it. Again, I'm going in my brain to the BBC production that you haven't seen. There's a lot of sequences that happen outdoors. So, for instance, when the colonel rescues Marianne from the rain. Now, that sequence, I would assume, is just off stage, and he brings her into the room. In Chicago, we actually had him pick her up and carry her. But we cut that in San Diego just because of length of the show. The show was feeling a little long, and I actually felt it was just better just to have her in the bed and the aftermath of that. So we ended up doing that. Did you keep the other fiancé of of Edward? Oh, yeah. Lucy Steele. She's quite important. You're basically just cutting mother and sister. You would have, obviously... The evil wife of the brother sure. has Fanny, to be. Fanny and John are definitely prevalent. You know, you know the characters that are really necessary for storytelling, they may not get a lot of stage time, but they are absolutely essential parts of the storytelling. Is there an intermission? There is. I'm a big fan of writing short shows, and I love writing shows that are one act, but you cannot make Austin a one act. Austin definitely needs two acts. In the two-part BBC version, the split comes when Willoughby walks out suddenly. We'd have our intermission a little later than that. Our intermission comes when Lucy Steele informs Eleanor that she's been secretly engaged to Edward for three years. That, of course, sets Eleanor off. So the last song is Eleanor singing brokenhearted about, oh my God, Edward, who I thought was in love with me, is actually engaged in love with somebody else. And then, of course, Marianne is still forlorn about losing Willoughby temporarily. So they both sing about their lost loves at the end of Act One. That brings up a question about the songs that you gear toward Eleanor and those toward Marianne. From the character and language perspective, what are you doing in terms of making one sing wiser and the others sing more immature, let's say. Is there a distinction in how you've created their individual songs? Yes. Marianne is definitely more feisty. Her music is feistier. Some of her music tends to be more in an alto range and Eleanor stuff can be a little mixy, but Eleanor's big song in act two, I mean, Sharon Reitkirk, when you hear her sing, wow. She has a song called, um, well, I won't even tell you the song, but she has a song in Act Two where I, I, I think she will blow the room away. When you're creating these musicals and you've done several others, do you use that process that Sondheim talked about, about writing the play first and then looking to see what scenes you could kind of remove and replace with song? Yeah, so what I do when I'm doing everything is that I will write the book first. It will just be a book. And I'll try not even to think about music. What is the story? What do I want to tell? What's important? And then once I've finished writing the whole thing, then I can go back and go, where do the songs go? Actually, with Sense and Sensibility, you know what I did? I think with Sense, I wrote one scene at a time and then musicalized it. But it's really better just to write the whole thing so that you know the story you're telling. Because sometimes 
when you're writing music, you know, you can, it, it can be intoxicating. And it's like, oh, I love this melody. I want it to be longer. Oh, and wouldn't it be great if it went here? And then you realize that doesn't fit in with the pace of the storytelling because musicals, musicals are tough because you're thinking about so many things. You're thinking about the characters, you're thinking about the storytelling, but you're also thinking about the music and the pace of the music. Is it an up-tempo? Is it, is it a ballad? You know, is the audience gonna start to get antsy that there hasn't been a song for five minutes? You know, there's so many things that you have to balance and you really don't know what you have until you hear that first reading with actors that are singing, then you realize, oh, I'm close or I'm far away or act one is working, act two is not working. And that's when you really do the hard work and figure it out. So it's that first table read, uh, the famous table reads of Sondheim, where suddenly there's all of this information. I remember it on Bounce, which became Roadshow, and more recently on the unfinished Boonwell musical where people go in and they just sing and the word is it's wonderful. And then sometimes would say, I hate it and drop it for a while. Yeah. You know, composers, we're hard on ourselves. My challenge is I want every song I write to feel like the best song I ever wrote. And if it's not, I'll be disappointed and throw it out. I have no problem throwing out songs if I don't think they're working. On the melodies, do you reuse the melodies of songs that you've thrown out? Absolutely. I'm a big believer in the trunk songs, and I catalog every melody I write. So usually when I take on a new show, I've usually got like two or three songs, a verse or a chorus or a section that were in other shows that didn't work, but I loved the music, and then I'll just rewrite the lyric. Paul Gordon, obviously politics plays a big role in our lives, probably a lot more and a lot scarier than it has been in the past. When you're looking at these shows, are you looking at at all about the social or political implications of what you're working on? Absolutely. With my Austin pieces, you know, those are sort of social manners and they're not especially political, although certainly women's issues and feminism plays a big role in Austin and Charlotte Bronte. But yeah, I'm a very political person and I like to choose subject matters that I feel like we can learn from. One of my favorite shows right now that, that I've been working on is a musical called The Front that was a film that came out in the 1970s with Woody Allen and Zero Mostel, directed by Martin Ritt about the Hollywood blacklist. That's an important story to tell. And I, you know, I want to tell that story. And that's a musical that that we've been waiting to do for a while. I also have another musical called The Circle that's basically about gun violence. And it's it's very hard hitting and edgy and it's hard to get theaters to want to do this piece, but I believe in it. And, you know, I believe in using my voice and, and just saying what I believe. I remember The Front because Mustel was blacklisted. And I believe it's mostly the story guess of Walter Bernstein, I think, more than any of the others. I'm not it sure. Is, it is Walter Bernstein's story. And everybody connected with that film, except for um, Woody Allen and I'm forgetting the young woman that played his love interest. Everybody else had been blacklisted in the 50s. It's a movie that I don't know why more people don't know about this movie. And and the only reason I would create a musical based on a movie is that if I felt it was a movie 
that nobody had seen, people had missed. And there's a reason to show people this subject. And I just think it's a, it's a perfect screenplay. It, it just felt like a story that really needed to be told right now. Is Sense and Sensibility now fixed or are you still working a little on it? I guess, Richard, what I would say is that while I'm still alive, none of my shows are done. I will always keep working on them. Robert Kelly and I are discussing changes to the show every day. I've got an email that I'm going to look at when I get off this call with you that I know he's got some new notes today. And, but I love it. I love working on the show, making it better, you know, finding ways to improve it. That's fun. How easy or hard is it for you in any of these shows when you have a song or a section that you really love, or even that the audience and previews is loved, but it slows down the show? Are you willing to say, get rid of it? Sure. You know, I think it was Michael Bennett who coined the phrase, sometimes you have to murder your darlings. And I'm, I'm pretty good with that. You know, what I look for when I'm watching my show is, is the show working? Not is that song working, not is that my favorite moment, but is the whole piece working? And you have to see the whole thing. And if you have a great song that you love, but it's not working, or it's like what you just said, Richard, it's slowing down the storytelling, yes, then you cut it, or you make it shorter, you do something, you have to. And I think the mistake that a lot of people make in musicals is they start to fall in love with their own work, and they just can't bear to part with it. And, you know, you have to in, in, in theater because there's, there's just so many factors when you're trying to tell a story for two hours, two and a half hours or so. So that would mean that the very first preview, and this is even after tech where you've seen the show, but that very first preview with a real audience, you're kind of sitting there tense for the entire show because no matter what, that's the first time you really know what works and what doesn't. That is so correct. And I will tell you that the first preview is by far the scariest time in any journey of a musical, because you're absolutely right. Now you get to know th this is what the cast was laughing at during rehearsal, but nobody's laughing during the first preview. So you just have to figure it out. You have to work fast. You know, in regional theater, you get like two or three previews. It's not like Broadway where you get several weeks. So you have to make these changes fast. And sometimes you don't have time to make all the changes that you want to make. And you have to sort of go, we'll have to do that in the next production. I was talking with a former artistic director named Loretta Greco at the Magic Theater in San Francisco. And she once said that in a way, that second production becomes almost as important as the first, because it's there you put in a new director and a new cast, and you can see what kind of transcends the cast and the director. Have you found that to be the case? Well, this is what's happening now with Sense and Sensibility, because Barbara Gaines from Chicago Shakespeare directed the only two productions we've ever done. So this is Robert Kelly's first production, and I'm getting to see Kelly do it a whole new way, which is really fun. You know, I loved what Barbara Gaines did in Chicago. I thought it worked really well. But Kelly's just a different director, so it's just a whole different thing. And this also works, and that's the great thing about theater. You can do the same show a completely different way, and if the show works, chances are that other way you're doing it is going to work.
Well, that that's what reminds me of The King and I, which I've seen a few times. And the first time I saw it, it was on a tour with Yul Brynner hmm. way back in the 70s, I think. Sure. And it was an imperialist show. And the next time I saw it was on a revival. And it was an anti-imperialist <laughs> show. And the last revival, it was a feminist show. Yes, yes. Well, that's the beauty of doing these shows is that you can reinterpret them. And especially if the authors are living, you can, you know, have them rewrite and tailor and tweak. I want to ask you about a couple of other shows before we go. Estella Scrooge, what's that? So Estella Scrooge is a show that John Caird and I created, which is a, basically a Dickensian mashup. It takes basically a Christmas carol. Nicholas Nickleby and Great Expectations and mashes them up along with every other Dickens novel. And we have probably 64 different Dickensian characters, but it's an updated version. And um, our Ebenezer's name is Estella, and she's a young Wall Street tycoon that, that on Christmas Eve decides to, to go to Pickwick, Ohio, to foreclose on the Hart House Hotel, run by Nick Nickleby. So we've mashed up all these stories. It's a, basically sort of a rock score, and it's really fun. I really love the show, and and we filmed it during you know during when everything was shut down, and uh, we filmed it one actor at a time in a very small green screen studio, with the brilliant Tyler Milliron. He was our DP and. He was our editor. And if you watch this on streaming musicals, you will be completely blown away to learn that none of these actors were in the room at the same time. It's just remarkable. Daddy Longlegs, I take it, is not the Fred Astaire musical. Oh, God. So what's crazy is that we've done the show and we've had critics literally talk about the Fred Astaire musical for like the first three paragraphs, which has absolutely not only nothing to do with our show, nothing to do with the book in which our show is based. Our show is based on the Gene Webster novel. And Fred Astaire basically took the idea and then did something totally different that is kind of creepy. I mean, he's probably in his 60s in this movie, and his love interest is probably 18. And he sees her on the street and goes, I want to send her to college and meet her and marry her. That's pretty creepy. And that is not at all what our musical is. <laughs> that was Leslie Caron. Yeah, right? it was Fred Astaire and Leslie Caron. Is being earnest yes. an adaptation? Yeah, it's okay. That's Oscar Wilde. And we've updated that to 1965 during the musical British Invasion. So it's sort of the music of the Beatles and the Bee Gees and the Stones and that period of music. I guess Sleepy Hollow was just Ichabod Crane? Yeah, Sleepy Hollow is a show that I wrote with Hunter Foster, and he had a very interesting take on the story. It's, it's, it's still a period piece, but he made it very political, and I, and I think it's quite good. We've never done it. We haven't had a production of it yet. Funny, I was just thinking about that show this morning. Two other shows were Knight's Tale and No One Called Ahead. Yeah, so Knight's Tale is a show that John Caird and I wrote that just finished a run in Tokyo. It's quite a large show. It's based on the two noble kinsmen. And John Caird, I believe, has staged this show so brilliantly. I think it's the best visual work John has done since Les Mis. 
and it's just spectacular. No One Called Ahead is a much smaller musical about a guy who just, you know, he he's just broke up with his girlfriend and he rents a cabin in the woods to get away from it all for a week. He's a struggling artist. And he starts to receive these visitations from these incredible women who are telling him that they're here to help him with his transition because he might or might not be dying. It's a comedy. It's pretty fun. It's a one act. And, you know, that's the kind of musical that I just, you know, will make up out of my head and just write it and write some songs and just put it on and and hope people like it. Paul Gordon, Broadway itself now has become, well, maybe it's going to change back because the tourist situation has changed and people can't make advance bookings too far in advance, but it had become kind of a Disneyland of shows for people from the Midwest. How does that affect Paul Gordon and where he wants to put a show? That's a great question, Richard. I've waited a long time for my motivation for writing to not be Broadway. And I think that's where streaming comes in and where streaming musicals comes in. When we did Daddy Longlegs off-Broadway in 2015, Ken Davenport, our producer, had the idea, because we weren't selling tickets that well, had the idea of live streaming the show in New York, LA, Tokyo, and London, which we did. And 150,000 people saw the show from 65 different countries in one night. And I just went, holy crap, like this changes everything. And I instantly knew this is what we should be doing. Why not give theater artists lifetime royalties for their work? And why not have accessibility for the whole world instead of the little community where, where your show is playing, be it you know San Francisco, New York, Chicago, or anywhere? So I've been working really hard on this idea for the past three or four years with my team at Streaming Musicals. And you know I just believe that the unions have to get smart and have to allow us to capture shows and live theater for just the cost of the filming so that we can afford to do it and we can literally transform our industry. But to answer your question, I'm writing for that. I'm not writing for Broadway. I'm writing the pieces that I wanna write. I'm writing the stories that I wanna tell in the way that I wanna tell them and not waiting for Broadway to give me a break. Although I am working on a show right now with a Broadway producer that I love that might, you know, go that path. It's a show called The Gospel According to Heather about a 17-year-old girl who might or might not be the second coming, which is a drag because she just wants a boyfriend. Paul Gordon, that brings us around to streamingmusicals.com. So there is an app for Broadway musicals where people pay subscriptions. Streamingmusicals.com is something different. That's a pay-per-view, yes. correct? And the reason that it's a pay-per-view, and I really want people to hear this, is subscription services, though we love them as consumers, they are deaf to royalty holders like myself and the artists that create this material. So on streaming musicals, when you pay your $5.99 for your rental, that money, part of that money will go to the authors, the musicians, and the actors, and the writers. This is how we change our industry. When you're just on a subscription, that's pennies, and that's not going to change anyone's life. So streaming musicals is really trying to be in the forefront of let's change this model. 
let's be more inclusive of everybody. Let's make theater sustainable, accessible, and available and affordable. And Pride and Prejudice had been, I think, free on Amazon Prime, but now it's, I think you have to pay for it. I'm not sure. I think Pride and Prejudice currently is available to stream for free on Amazon Prime if you have a subscription. Emma, I believe you have to pay for right now. They sort of go in and out. They rotate things into their paid and out. I'm just sort of learning about it. But yeah, no, and we have like 300,000 people that have already watched Pride and Prejudice. How many shows are currently there? And going back, how hard was it to even get this thing off the ground? You thought of it and contacted people? Once I saw Daddy Longless and I just went, oh, this is what we have to do. I started working with uh, Tom Pollum and Stacia Fernandez. And the three of us have this company called Streaming Musicals. And I just started raising the money to, to shoot Emma. And nobody knew what I was talking about. What do you mean you want to shoot your show in a theater without an audience like a film? Because we had to be on a SAG contract because equity just wouldn't let us do it. So we had to be on a SAG contract and do it a different way. And it took me like a year to raise the money to do it. And we filmed it. And we you know put it on streaming musicals. And this is a show that had sold out everywhere it had played previously, but I, I just couldn't get any other theater to do it. I had, a, I had a script and a demo, and that's just not going to go very far. So as soon as we streamed it, I immediately got a worldwide licensing deal with Music Theater International. And the year of the pandemic, we had six productions, and all our investors were going to make their money back. But of course, the pandemic canceled five of the six productions. But with that said, as things come back, we have proof of concept of this model. This model works. And this is what we all should be doing right now. And I just can't say it loud enough. We should be streaming every show. There's no reason not to. People think, well, theater's precious and you don't want to do that. But, you know, it's a different world. It's the 21st century. And people forget when the original Broadway cast recordings came out in the 1940s, Broadway producers were afraid of them. They thought if people hear the records, nobody will go see the show. Of course, the opposite was true. When Legally Blonde filmed on MTV, people thought nobody will go to the show. It did enormous things for the show. And in baseball, when the Yankees started televising all their home games, everybody went, nobody will ever go to a baseball game. The opposite happened. A whole generation of kids got excited about baseball and it never stopped. We need to do the same thing with theater. It will literally change our industry. Well, I keep thinking about the movie of Chicago from 2003, and Chicago is still running. Absolutely. The evidence is overwhelming. It's just fear. People are afraid. People don't want to change. They have these contracts from the 1950s that have no connection to the 21st century. So now is the time. You started with streaming musicals, but this doesn't have to just be musicals. No, no. We have plays, too. I mean, it's musicals and plays. One thing that has changed in the past two years is the world of streaming has completely shifted as most theater companies now must record their plays. Right. But unfortunately, they're recording them under an equity contract, which only allows the number of seats to be filled for like a week, two weeks, instead of forever, everyone. Can you imagine 
what these theaters could make and how it would supplement their income and how it would change how everything operates. It would just be amazing, but they're not doing it. Paul Gordon, now we have Sense and Sensibility and you're working on, you mentioned a few other projects. Are there any projects that you're currently working on that look to be to getting some kind of production within the next year? Yeah, I have a stream coming out, hopefully within the next few months, called Stellar Atmospheres, starring Hannah Ellis. And it's a one-woman show about Celia Payne, who in 1925 figured out what the stars were made of, but nobody believed her. And it's a wonderful little show, and we are, we're working on it now. And that will go directly to streaming? That will go directly or that- to stream, and I imagine that will be available by the summer, all on streaming musicals. And they would all be eventually available for people to do anyway, live. Absolutely. Because really, the part about streaming musicals that's, that's important is that we want to license these shows. It's not just that we want to stream them and have people see them. We want other theaters to do this work and help the life of these shows. And what about getting critical responses to these shows in places like the New York Times and Washington Post? Well, I'll be honest, Richard. (laughs) You know, not having critics talk about your shows sometimes is a good thing. What I love about this model so far is that critics can't hurt us. And you, you know how it is right now in New York. A great review won't help you, but a bad review will hurt you. And that's unfortunate, the way that exists in New York and Broadway and theater right now. But certainly being talked about and people writing about it and discussing it is very helpful. You've been listening to an interview with Paul Gordon. He wrote the music, lyrics, and book of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility, which plays at TheaterWorks Palo Alto at the Lucy Stern Theater through April 3rd, directed by Robert Kelly. And for more information, you can go to TheaterWorks, and that's T-H-E-A-T-R-E works.org. And at some point, it will be streaming and may wind up either, I guess, at Amazon or more likely at streamingmusicals.com. Yes, that's right. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. And feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.